Um, but uh, if you want to get in your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 16 and, uh, is the goal. You guys know me and my goals, uh, but really we'll most likely be getting through verse 10 today. And I seem to have set my glasses somewhere, so if you uh, come across those bad boys, <laughs> it's going to be an interesting one today. I can't read anything in front of me, so uh, it's all coming from memory. Just teasing. Uh, let's stand together, and we're going to read verses 1 through 16 today. Get a good full context. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 1. Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men and corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. For which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality and dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be glory, or rather honor, and everlasting power. Amen. And Lord, here we are before your word, a passage that uh, really tackles and is relevant uh, to many of the struggles that we find ourselves in today. Um, just the immense craving of our flesh in covetousness and not being content with the things that you have given us. Uh, Lord, in this culture, we are just confronted with this text today, and um, unless the Spirit of the living God come and just do a work of transformation in our heart, convicting and just bringing godly sorrow for, um, for these specific sins, Lord, we just we find ourselves stuck in the miry clay, and we just pray for a work that is just so 
powerful today that we would lift us up out of the miry clay of covetousness and set our feet upon the rock, put a new song in our heart about you and your beauty and your sufficiency and that many would see and many would hear and many would want what we have in you, Lord. We just would pray you'd begin the work as we get into the text today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We'll go ahead and have a seat. Last week, we made it through verses 1 and 2 of uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, kind of titled those two verses, you know, just kind of uh, summed them up as in making the money, going to work, having masters, being a servant uh, at work. Um, the context, of course, is a slave with their master. Today, it's applicable for us in Prineville, uh, employees uh, in our submission and servitude to our uh, employers. And uh, even those who are believing masters and the heart that the Lord would have us towards them, uh, being servants towards them and rejoicing that they're believers and they're beloved, beloved and the Lord is prospering them. And that is a wonderful, beautiful thing that shouldn't lead us to jealousy, uh, but rather towards just uh, even more excellence in our servitude toward them. Uh, and then we're going to just kind of uh, as we look through these sets over even the next uh, week or two, uh, it, it's, it seems a bit jumpy as you're studying through it um, because we're going to hop towards, uh, you know, looking at verse uh, six where it speaks of uh, wanting the money. And then even farther on, uh, looking at verse uh, 17, having the money. So it seems like there's these little things about, you know, the wealth and whether you're earning it, wanting it, or having it, uh, and yet there's other things in between that can make it a little splotchy or jumpy. In fact, uh, Donald Guthrie said, the concluding portion of the epistle, where we're at right now, contains no clear sequence of thoughts. So I know you might think that's me, that, well, Rory just never really has any clear sequence. Don't blame it on me, Okay. Uh, it's a little bit of how Paul was writing this uh, when he wrote it. Um, but it's best to deal with it in self-contained sections. So we're going to attempt to do that as we work through the word today and next week. And so let's look at verse 3 after coming off the, the teaching there of um, submission and servitude towards our masters. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the doctrine which accords with godliness. So Paul may be referring to that teaching from last week of the heart of bond servants towards their masters or more specifically even towards uh, believing masters. If that's the case, he's giving that teaching, which he says teach and exhort these things at the end of verse 2. He's giving that teaching a lot of weight, you know. He would be calling that teaching concerning uh, hearts towards masters uh, wholesome words uh, or even the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. It, it's right up there in doctrine, which accords with godliness. And of course, that is true. If you understand the word of God, the inspiration of the scriptures and the writing thereof, uh, then you know that that. Man, verses 1 and 2 are wholesome words. They're the words of the Lord Jesus. They accord with godliness. The really, the whole book is that. The whole letter of Paul towards Timothy as Timothy leads uh, the church in Ephesus there. And so there's this overall principle of teaching rightly the word of God. Teaching correct doctrine. 
preaching healthy, sound truth, the statement of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the teachings of piety and religion, and teaching religion based upon the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for us on the cross and in the plan of God for salvation from Genesis through the book of Revelation. And, uh, and it says that these individuals who would not agree, whether it's the teaching towards masters or whether it's anything else that Paul may be getting into regarding our conduct in the household of faith and the proclamation of the gospel uh, to the entire world. Uh, verse 4, that man is proud. He's proud and he knows nothing. And that's just a good little word for us as we are perhaps that man or perhaps we know that man or that woman. We're sharing at work with individuals. We're sharing the gospel. We're, we're inviting people to know Jesus. We're sharing the hope that is found in the grace and salvation of Christ. Uh, and yet you all know those individuals that just, well, I've got my own kind of take on this, my own opinion. And their opinion happens to be counter the word of God. It is not according to the doctrine which accords with godliness. So, you know, we live in such a inclusive culture that anything goes when in reality, if anyone disagrees, it doesn't go. It's a dog that don't hunt, you know. Paul would say this individual who's in disagreement with the scripture and God's plan of salvation is proud. They're a proud individual. And when you speak to people of the gospel of grace, it's an offense to them because it's telling them you are not righteous enough to stand before a holy God. You will be found guilty of sin and rebellion and you will be judged. And that judgment will be separation from that holy God for all of eternity. You will find yourself in the lake of fire and the wrath of God will abide on you. In fact, it abides on you now. So get rid of that self-righteousness. As the old hymn goes, it, it says, uh, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. I got nothing. You know, my pockets are empty. I have no self-rightness. And so I come with brokenness and humility as the Sermon on the Mount says, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn because they're poor in spirit. They realize their poverty of spirit. They are spiritually bankrupt. So when we preach a message of uh, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and the various people out in our community, or even in this room today, who, uh, who say, no, you know, I mean, you know, not, not really salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. I'm, I'm this, and I'm that, and I've got this going for me, and frankly, I've done pretty good at this and that, and so, you know, I think I've got a pretty good chance. They are proud. That's pride. And the book of Romans says that every mouth that has that prideful chitter-chatter will be stopped and they will be found a liar. They're going to be standing there and, well, I'm, 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 and the Lord says, shush, 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 shush. <laughs> and the books will be opened and they'll be shown their actual unrighteousness before the standards of this holy God. They're proud, extremely proud. And the language speaks of its foolishness. It's foolishness to stand before the holy God of the universe and kind of bring out our 
merits before him. When our best deed on our best day is as filthy rags before him, the book of Isaiah says. They know nothing. They know nothing. You're there spouting off before the judge and you know nothing and no one. You don't understand God's economy and his roles and his, his uh, standards and his uh, provision for righteousness. But you're obsessed with disputes and arguments over words. The language of this person speaks that he is sick and morbid. He just seeks after information for debates and controversy. And we know individuals like this. And God forbid we might be the individual that does this. Just looking for a fight, looking for an argument, looking for a way to show that we are right or I am right and you are wrong. Then the only thing that comes from that is envy, jealousy and strife with quarrels and reviling accompanied with slandering one another and blaspheming God with evil suspicion and giving someone the evil lie, considering them worthless. You know, and as we would do that, we would have the language speaks of a sick criminal suspicion. Amazing. It's kind of a quick hop, isn't it? Like as many of you bond servants who are under the yoke can't your ma- count your masters worthy of all honor. And even if you have a believing master, don't despise them because they're believers, but serve them because they're believers and beloved. And, you know, oh, this is a- and if anyone disagrees, <laughs> you're proud, you know nothing, you're just obsessed with disputes and you've, you've countered the gospel. Who do you think you are? The Phillips translation, which is a very modern translation, and then it was translated in the uh, 1940s, a really good and accurate translation in modern language, says, this is the sort of thing you should teach. And if anyone tries to teach some doctrinal novelty, which is not compatible with sound teaching, which we base on Christ's own words and which leads to Christ-like living, then he is a conceited idiot, is what the language speaks of. His mind is a morbid jumble of disputation and arguments, things which lead to nothing but jealousy, quarreling, insults, and malicious innuendos. Any sort of other doctrine is not a a true doctrine. I like that he, Phillips, translates it as doctrinal novelties. You guys know what a novelty store is when you go to the mall or something? They're the ones that sell the the plastic dog poop, you know, that you, like, go put on someone's porch and... (laughs) You know, or the, you know, the Bart Simpson Pez dispenser, you know, or whatever. No, it's just silly. It's really useless. You know, you might get a little laugh, but, uh, you know, that's, that's what any other doctrine is. It's just silly. It's nonsense. It's a waste of money, a waste of time. And so this corrupt man is obsessed with disputes. It's fatally flawed. That Phillips translation says he's a conceited idiot. And the Revised English Version says he's in pompous ignoramus. It's strong language, but it's not over the top. When you look in verse 5, this individual is just so consumed with useless wranglings of men, of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth. Useless wranglings kind of like that word you know here we are in primeville we appreciate the word wrangling don't we wrangler wrangling i think chris has a dog named wrangler adam's wearing wranglers you know uh, you know we just got done with rodeo season you know and you got the steer wrestlers and I don't, would that be considered useless wrangling you know it's kind of it's no they're 
of course we know that they are showing their skills that they use out on the plains. You know, at one time I had to hurr, you know, but uh, not useless by any means. Transfer this to the spiritual realm, and there are these useless wranglings. The Greek language is diaparatribe, and it speaks of constant arguing and just constant friction of these men of corrupt minds. And between corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, the Greek speaks of depraved and depraved, wickedness. And really something that is such evidence of this wicked false teacher that Paul would be speaking towards is that they suppose that godliness is a means of great gain. To these individuals, these false teachers, religion equals wealth. And in these six chapters, Paul has dealt with the false teacher issue quite a bit. I think it's in in verse 2 of chapter 1 or verse 3 of chapter 1, he says, uh, when I left for Ephesus, I charged you to stay, rather you stay in Ephesus, that you may command some that they teach no other doctrine. These guys were teaching other doctrines. And he goes on, these individuals were, were allowing you know, the, the females to be leaders in the church, and these females brought in with them the culture of Ephesus and this pride, and, and with that pride and with that culture and with these teachings, it brought false doctrines and asceticism telling people they couldn't marry, they couldn't give in marriage, you couldn't eat these sorts of things or drink these sorts of things. And it was this form of asceticism that was just completely leading people to the pit of hell. Just more and more is taught about these false teachers that Timothy was going to have to deal with. And just one of the signs of them is, and it's so good for us today as we uh, have no shortage of famous men to follow in the teaching circuit, anyone who would consider religion a means of great gain, to consider religion equaling wealth, or that true doctrine must be financially viable, is someone to watch out for. In fact, he says, withdraw yourself and get away from these men. And so they think that this religion should be a really financial viably, uh, viable option. And that gets us directly into verse 6. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. So kind of getting into this second part of the money aspect of this chapter where it's more like kind of the wanting of the money or a heart of contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, these false teachers who would diss the gospel, who would preach a different gospel, who were all about the arguments and the useless wranglings, these individuals, they thought that godliness was a means of great gain. But here we see godliness with contentment is great gain. Religion and piety is more than enough and is a surprising means of gain in and of itself. And when I say the word religion, it's different than how the world says religion. I want to speak of it in a biblical sense. Religion, in a biblical sense, it just speaks of uh, piety. It speaks of a, a relationship with God and knowing God and having God pour himself into us, pour his righteousness and his grace into us and as his grace is poured out upon us we respond to that grace 
with many good and wonderful actions because he is worthy of it. Not that we're trying to earn it, but because we've been given it freely and now we pour it out to the world. And that, with contentment, is great gain. We must be careful, though, when we teach this verse and when we read this verse because we live in a culture that is pretty obsessed with the, the word content. Contentment. We live in kind of the... Uh, the world that, you know, that it's kind of a movement, but those that, you know, they, oh, you know, we don't have to have all this and we're going to kind of be those that are much more simple and we're going to begin eating more simple and we're going to be shopping more simple and we're going to be kind of that. It's, it's kind of its own subculture within our culture. And yet even that type of contentment, uh, it, it is not great gain unless it's with godliness. All right. Contentment with godliness is great gain. You can't subtract the godliness part. Paul isn't speaking to just the religious people of the world, whether that's the Mormons or the Muslims or the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Buddhists. I mean, they all have this level of just be content with this and, and we don't do this and we don't do that. And, but if it's without Jesus Christ, it's going to lead you to poverty, not great gain. It will lead you to the spiritual bankruptcy, it will heap spiritual bankruptcy upon you. And so godliness is not apart from contentment, nor is contentment apart from godliness. Contentment has been defined as a sense of satisfaction that arises from having what one desires or from not desiring more than one has. I think that's really what speaks to us today as far as contentment goes is not desiring more than what one has. Even Epicurus, who was a Greek philosopher, you kind of learn about him as you study chapter 18 of the book of Acts, um, whether it's the Stoic philosophy or the Epicurean philosophy. Well, Epicurus was the famous philosopher who uh, was responsible for the whole eat, drink, and tomorrow we die uh, mentality. But he even spoke of contentment in a very wise way that said, the secret to contentment is not adding to my possessions, but rather taking away my desires. Take away my desires. When Mr. Rockefeller was asked, how much money do you need, Mr. Rockefeller? He answered, just a little more than I have. Just a little more than I have. Philippians chapter 4, you have Paul who is in chains for the gospel's sake. And he says, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Notice Paul says, I've learned it. This is something that we must learn. This is something that, that the Lord, as we spend time in his presence and we just revel in the glory of who he is and his person and his work we realize all i need is you lord is you lord all i need is you by the paul by the time paul was working through his ministry going through all the trials and tribulations that he went through he found he learned that whatever state i'm currently in right now i'm content i'm content even if i'm in chains because he had joy in Christ. 
He was in Christ. That was his state. As Hebrews 13, 5 says, let your conduct be without covetousness. Is that something that describes your conduct as you go throughout the week? Or your eye is just constantly glancing and glancing, and I covet that, and I lust, lust after that, and I want that, and I don't have that, but I want that. And if I just had that, my life would be easier, and my life would be better, and you're just, your conduct is with covetousness. You're just on the Amazon Prime app, and you're just constantly like, if I had that, if I had that, it's only this much, but I could just work for it. You know, and, and just there's not a contentment. Your daily conduct is one of covetousness. And he goes on to say, so be content with such things as you have, for he himself said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So what do you have as a Christian and what state are you presently in? You are in the state of having Jesus. That is your state. And when you are in that place, I have Jesus, so I have it all. I don't want it all. I have it all. In him, I live. In him, I move. In him, I have my being. He told me he'd never leave me or forsake me. I don't need all of that. Susie Orman wrote the book, Nine Steps to Financial Freedom. And she wrote, when I finally managed to make more money than I could ever imagine... To wear a Rolex watch with my designer clothes and vacation on my own private island, I found myself as miserable and empty as I could imagine. And I was forced to conclude that if money does not hold the key to happiness, then I have no idea where the key is to be found. Susie Orman didn't know what we know. That the key is found in Jesus. In knowing Jesus, being known by Jesus, he is my all in all. He provides for me life and love and hope and joy and peace. I was created in his image to reflect his glory to the world and to bring him praise And though my sin shattered that image and distorted it and separated me from him, he pursued me. And while I was his enemy, he died for me, that he could redeem me and buy me back. And when I'm back, I'm back. I'm back in shalom. I'm back in an approximate Garden of Eden state again. I'm walking in the garden in the cool of the day with my God. And I have found in whatever state I am, I'm content. I'm joyful. So much to say there, but uh, so little time. But Paul goes on to add to it in verse 7. For we brought nothing into this world. And it is certain we can carry nothing out. I feel like we need to have the verse before it with the verse after it verse six now godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out most of us in this room were born naked most of us 
And though you may be buried in clothing one day, you won't be transporting any of those valuables with you. Don't you find this is a truly wise statement from Paul? I mean, it's simple. You might think like, oh, I could, I don't have a college education or a Bible college degree. And it's just like, hey, you didn't wear anything into this world and you're not wearing anything out. You didn't bring anything into this world. It's just wisdom. Practical wisdom from the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul to us today. And don't you find you just need some simple wisdom sometimes? Oh, I got to have this. I want it all. I'm just, no, man, oh, then my life would be good. And oh, man, by the end of my life, if I just had this, then, oh, then, then it would be okay. Then it would be good. Then I would be satisfied just a little more than I already have. It's just, you didn't come in with anything. You seem to do okay. And you're not going out with anything. So why all the hubbub in between? Job 121 said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's been said that keys, the key to contentment is taking seriously the transitory of life. The transitory state of life. We're just in transit. Want to be content? Just realize we're just passing through. John Shearer said, possessions are the luggage of time. They are not the stuff of eternity. We must travel light. We are on a brief pilgrimage, passing between two points where we'll be naked, birth and death. Just on this brief pilgrimage just transitory we're just passing through you know all these possessions it's just luggage that we're this is just the luggage of life we don't have to have it brief pilgrimage passing between two points where we'll be naked naked here naked there what's all this about it's wisdom listening to a soldier recently describe before he goes to war he's given a blue book to fill out uh, before the battle that describes what they want to be buried with on the battlefield or buried with if they die in combat. What, what do you want with you in the casket? It's like, how much, you know, is the list long enough? <laughs> or, you know, are there enough blanks? Like, well, I want this and this and this. And of course, there's my dog and I love that animal. And, you know, you know, it's like, is it, do I really need all this stuff in the box with me? As I go down to, as John Patton said, go where the worms will eat me or the cannibals, whichever comes from you. That was John's actual statement. But you might remember the old statement that you'll never see a Hertz funeral car pulling a U-Haul trailer. You know, they're on their way to the cemetery and it's like, oh, hey, they're moving something. I was reminded recently of when my dad passed away and hard time you know I was 19 years old and I'd never really been responsible for burying somebody before or, or you know you go and you meet with the funeral home director and what do you want him to be clothed in while he's cremated and it's like does it matter do, does he have to wear clothes like am I missing something here <laughs> like well let's make sure he's wearing those new cowboy cut wranglers that he got you know and 
and the, those leather boots, he should probably have those on, and, you know, the bolo the, the, with the turquoise, you know, stone in it, he should probably, like, no, it's all going to burn, is what Peter tells us in First Peter. It, it literally all burned. I can be a little more with it now. Back then it wasn't so. But, but to move on with that, then we were asked with the funeral home director, what would you like his urn to be? And we have this little, you know, metal urn, and we have this one, and ooh, this one has like an like oily rainbow sheen to it. And, and then, and I don't know, let me pull this curtain back. And here we have the hand-carved mahogany cowboy boot urn for you. We're in Lakeview, so they know what sells. You know, they got the little curtain. And here we have, would you like your father's ashes to go in these hand-carved mahogany cowboy boots? Only $300 more. And of course, me and my mom were like, I think so. That seems like a really good idea. So we forked out the money for that. And then when he was put in the mausoleum, we were disappointed to discover that the plot that he had was behind a solid marble wall. And in the last 16 years since he's passed away, I've never seen those expensive mahogany cowboy boot urns. Are you following me? What is our deal? We are so covetous so quickly. We think, oh, he needs that, we need that, she needs that, they need that. Naked and naked is the general gist of things. If we have Jesus, we have enough. We're carrying nothing into this world. We're carrying nothing out of the world. The psalmist says that when he dies, he carries nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. Think of all of your stuff at your house. Think of all of your precious possessions. Think of all that you've acquired. Let me tell you this. One day, it will be in a garage sale. It might not be your garage sale. It might not be your kid's garage sale. But pretty soon, that item will find its way out on a yard and someone will be bartering for it. I remember out on our ranch. Big ranch that we grew up on. And at my grandfather's house, he had a, uh, a ski boat and a motorhome. And he parked these ski boats in this motorhome in this shed, in this shop. And oh man, you know, as a little kid growing up, this beautiful, shiny boat and motorhome. You know, had our, had our brand painted on the side of this Winnebago, you know, quarter circle R on the right hip of this motorhome, you know. And you're there as a little kid and you're just like, one day, one day we're going to go in this boat. We'll be on a lake. Literally, it was one day. My entire life, I went on that boat one day, all right? And we would go out, and we would play in this boat. We'd go in the shed, and we'd get in the boat. Aye, aye, captain, and oh, oh, hey, you know? And then grandma would go, grandma's coming, get down. You kids, get out of that boat right now. This is not a toy, blah, blah, blah. we get out. Next day, back in the, okay, here comes grandma. Get it, grandma's coming, get down, you know? Oh, let's go to the motorhome. Go to the motorhome, you know, you know, just... Oh, here comes grandma. Get down. You kids, you know you're not supposed to play, you know. Those things never made it out of the shed. And the birds would roost up in the shed and poop all over it, and it would rot the paint. And we lost the ranch to the bank. And grandma and grandpa moved into a double wide in town. And the boat and the RV were parked behind the double double wide. And there they rotted. Such a special memory of possessions 
And you know, like now grandpa passed away this year and now there's this boat with a flat tire and a custom made aluminum cover that grandpa got crazy with some gel, with some uh, JB Weld. And you know, it's like, you guys want the boat? No, you want the boat? No, nobody wants a boat. You want the motorhome? You want motorhome? You want like nobody wants these things. <laughs> And grandpa went. He went naked. He didn't take it with him. Couldn't dig a big enough hole to put the Winnebago in with him, you know? It's just. Is it really right that he who dies with the most toys wins? Do we really buy that garbage? We buy it. Hook, line, and sinker. We are caught by it. We are being drugged away by it. I have bought it. I battle this regularly. Paul the Apostle had to battle this. This covetousness, it's, it's the one sin in the law that Paul says, I would not have known covetousness unless the law would have said, thou shalt not covet. Because covetousness, it, it, it's something that is inside of us. These other sins, I mean, it's, out, it's external, man. It's just obvious day by day. But so often covet, it's in here. Nobody really knows my eye and what it's glancing to and what I'm, you know. It, it's that sin that, man, we need the word of God to just be pulling out of us in direct spe, spe, specifics where our heart has gotten covetous. The toys that we think will really complete our life. And we all, we all, let's be honest. You get that thing, and in two years, it's a little bit rusty. It's a little bit scuffed. It's a little bit worn. And the new one has come out, the new model of it. It's got the different nose on the hood. It's got the different light cap on it. It's got the different exhaust, you know, that, man, what, what was I thinking getting this when that's out now, you know, and, and then so on and so forth. It's been said that covetousness is like a drug. It sucks you in and sucks you of life and leaves you wanting more. And J.I. Packer said, it's the wasting disease of modern Christianity. And I think in our culture, probably most in the world, it's a sin that we have got to battle by the power of the Spirit. We've got to spend time before the throne of grace and in the presence of God and be meditating upon his beauty and his wonder and how marvelous he is and how majestic he is and who he is and what he's done and what he's going to do and what he's promised to those who love him. When we find our heart just completely enamored with who he is and what he's done, all of the things of this world will go strangely dim in the light of his glory, in the light of his grace. We as Americans have lost the vision of a simple lifestyle. What does that even look like? Paul helps us out a little bit in verse 8. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be Content. Let's just pretend like that one's not in there, can we? Can we get that off the screen? Surely he doesn't only mean 
food and clothing alone, certainly, right? Man, take a trip to Nepal. Take a trip out of this world, and you'll see food and clothing just seem spectacular. Oh, man, if I just had a meal, if I just had some clothing, it's all we need. One of my favorite references is this quote from The Jerk with Steve Martin, TV edited version, where Steve Martin plays Navin R. Johnson, and he's in a fight with his wife, and he's leaving, and he says, well, I'm going to go then, and I don't need any of this. He's very wealthy at that point, but going bankrupt. I don't need any of this stuff, and I don't need you. I don't need anything except for this, and he picks up an ashtray. And that's the only thing I need is this. I don't need this or this, just this ashtray. And then he picks up a paddle game. And this paddle game, this ashtray and this paddle game, and that's all I need. And this remote control, this ashtray, this paddle game, and this remote control, that's all I need. And these matches, the ashtray, there's matches, the remote control, and the paddle game, and this lamp. And if you've seen them, you know, he just acquires more and more possessions. That's all I need. I don't need any other thing, not one. I need that. And he grabs the chair and he begins dragging out the office chair with him out of the house, right? That's all I need. The ashtray, the remote control, the paddle, ball, the paddle game, the magazine, and this chair. He's outside, his dog's sitting there. I don't need one more thing except for my dog. And his dog growls at him and he says, I don't need my dog. <laughs> all I need, I just need this one thing and then this and this and this. And we just acquire and acquire. In Proverbs 37 through 9, it says, Two things I request of you, deprive me not before I die. Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. This wisdom book of Proverbs teaches us that even in our food, not too much food, Lord, lest I be so full, I deny you. But not too little food either, Lord, lest I, lest I doubt you and be poor and steal. In Genesis chapter 28, we have Jacob making a vow. Saying, if God be with me and keep me in this way that I'm going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I've set as a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. And so here we have Jacob speaking of the provision of the Lord. With the food, I will be content. And of all that you give me, my God, I'll tithe it to you. How wonderful to know that in our contentment and being satisfied with Jesus, we realize his generosity toward us and we turn in our generos, generosity towards him. Or in Deuteronomy chapter 2 verse 7, the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hand. He knows you're trudging through this great wilderness. These 40 years the Lord has been with you, you have lacked nothing. So what is this whatever state I'm in, I'll be content? It is that even for 40 years, the Lord with you. Lacking nothing. It goes on later in Deuteronomy chapter 8. 
Sometimes the Lord humbles you and he allows you to hunger and he feeds you with manna, which you did not know or your fathers know. That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot even swell for these 40 years. 40 years of wilderness wandering, and the Lord sustained, and the Lord provided. As the Sermon on the Mount says, give us this day our daily bread. And going on to say, don't worry about the things of your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink. Or about your body or what you'll put on. And Jesus goes on and he uses the illustrations of the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. And he says, if the father knows the needs of the birds and the needs of the flowers, he feeds them and he clothes them. He loves you so much more, and he's going to provide in these ways. And as you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, in other words, as you are content in God, all these things shall be added unto you. You don't need to worry. Seek first the kingdom of God. Be content in him, and these things will be added unto you. It's true that money buys you stuff. It can buy you medicine, but it can't buy you health. It can buy you a house, but it can't buy you a home. It can buy you companionship, but not friends. It can buy you entertainment, but not happiness. It can buy you a bed, but it can't buy you sleep. It can buy you a good life, but it can't buy you eternal life. As the song from the movie, I don't care too much for money because money can't buy me love. Seneca said, money has never made anyone rich. It's never made anyone rich. And we just close with this warning today. We who live in just one of the most wealthy, rich nations the world has ever seen I can't say that I know exact statistics, but we are in just top percentage of the world's most wealthy. Even if you're the poorest in this room, man, taking a trip to some of these other worlds, other nations will show you how truly wealthy you are. It's such a warning to us that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. This is 1 Timothy 6, 9. And into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Notice it's those who desire to be rich. Is that a desire of yours? Your purpose and want and wish is to be rich and to have great wealth. You've made this your express purpose in life, to be rich. You'll determine to get rich at all costs. It's summarized by three words. First of all, you're tempted, yeah. You will find yourself tempted all the time, if that's your desire. What goes with money? Popularity, honor, power, leisure, satisfaction. And so in pursuit of those things, along with the cash, you will just have a target on your back for temptation. You'll go places you know you shouldn't go. In order to get rich, you'll make alliances with people that you shouldn't be friends with in order to get 
rich. You'll look in directions you should have never looked. You'll be tempted because you're discontent. Not only are you tempted, but you're ensnared or trapped. You'll find yourself caught. Maybe that is you today, and you just find yourself caught, just trapped and tempted. And Hendrickson says, as a snare keeps an animal in a prison, so the ungovernable passion for wealth fastens its clutching tentacles about those who pant after the dust of the earth. You know that the Lord wants to just remove the talons of a covetous heart today. Someone posted a video on Facebook yesterday of um, they were in uh, Tillamook driving by kind of the bay and this bald eagle had gone down and got this fish. I don't know what kind, it was too far away to tell. I'm guessing salmon, but I don't know. Uh, it was about this big. And as this bald eagle goes down and, you know, whatever, and gets it, it can't pull it up out of the water. And so it sucks this eagle down. And so it, this eagle is clutching this fish and, and flopping its wings, and it begins swimming to shore. And so this guy's videoing this bald eagle just do this, you know, thousand-yard dash with his wings, swimming to shore, and then drags this fish up. I don't know who was in more bondage, the fish or the eagle at that point, but the talons were fastened. Do you just feel like you're drowning today? Like you just can't get enough and you put yourself in situations and relationships in order to get more, specifically desiring to be rich? And just the talons and the tentacles are wrapped around you. The Lord wants to be setting you free today. And that freedom comes in godliness. Knowing Jesus, having his character and his hope and his holiness and his righteousness and his purity and his freedom just poured out upon you given to you in his grace giving you atonement for sin and and forgiveness for just walking right into those traps right into those snares trials and dangers that would come from being controlled it goes on to say you fall into many foolish and harmful lusts, which speak of unintelligible craving and just silly desires. These are very graphic and powerful words that show how terminal covetous is. They drown men into destruction and perdition. As I was trying to just memorize First Timothy, I'm loving those times with the Lord and just repeating verses, repeating verses and just thinking about it. And sometimes verses are so wordy that it's hard to remember order. And so I have to, on my paper, as I write out the verse, I have to draw little stick figure pictures and stuff to try to help get, this was one of them. And so I've got this, you know, this guy that's just desiring to be rich, you know, so there's like this dollar bill on a hook in front of him, you know, and he, he's walking, but in front of him, there's a, a trap and, you know, it's just this trap is so gnarly. It's, it's got, it's tempting, and there's this snare, and then there's foolish and harmful lusts, and, and the claws of this clamp look like waves, you know, the teeth, they look like waves, because when he falls into that clamp, it's not just going to crush him, it's going to drown him. It will, he'll, he'll drown, he won't be able to breathe. There's destruction and perdition. He will be plunged into the consequences of 
ruin and of death. And we don't have time today. My timer is out. In fact, Adam and team, come on up. But you look at the word and let me just say their names. And you think of their story. Because I know you've spent some time in the word. Think of Lot. Desire to be rich. Lifting his eyes up for what was the more profitable thing rather than what was more, the more holy thing. Lot. Balaam. Achan. Gehazi. The rich young ruler. Judas. Ananias and Sapphira. Simon the sorcerer. Cain and Balaam. The one who in the parable of the sower and seed, the seed is choked out by thorns and cannot grow and is killed. And Jesus later on would give explanation that those thorns are the cares of this world and the desires to be rich. Closing with verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Notice it doesn't say that money itself is the root or the basic cause of all kinds of evil, but loving money is. And as we just prepare to close, you can close your Bible and maybe just close your eyes and just come before the Lord as his word speaks today to us in our culture. He's just, man, today he is confronting us in our idolatry. And we must ask ourselves, am I a lover of money? One wise man said, how can I tell if I'm a lover of money in an inordinate way? When thoughts of money consume my day. If my mind were to go neutral, it goes to how much money I've got, how can I get more, how are my stocks doing? Secondly, I can tell that I'm eager for money when the financial success of others makes me jealous. When I define success in relationship to what I have rather than what I am in Christ. When my family is neglected in my pursuit of money. When everything is subservient to making money. When I close my eyes to the genuine need of others. I don't want to spend it. I just want to keep it all. When I live in fear of losing my money. When I'm prepared to borrow myself into bondage. When God receives my leftovers rather than my first fruits. Be careful. Let the Lord speak warning into us. That your reaching out after money wouldn't bring to you the foolish and injuring sinful desires. What a warning to us today. Lord, I just pray this morning for those that are in, as one translation says of this, that we're in untold agonies of mind because 
money and possessions and stuff just consumes our day, consumes our life. Lord, we, we just find ourselves in the, quick, in the quicksand and in the mire of covetousness. And Lord, just as Psalm 40 says, as was prayed earlier, we just pray that you would pull us up out of the pit, set our feet upon the rock. Just pray right now, Lord, that you would bring great conviction of your spirit upon us in this room today. We've heard your word. It's a timely word for us today. There's not one of us that isn't affected in some way that the enemy just isn't trying to just get his talons into us and suck us in. Lord, speak into our hearts. Point out the ways that we've just, we've just let ourselves go. We've, we've willingly just dove into foolish and harmful lusts. We're drowning. So much of the evil in our life can just be traced back to discontentedness. And Lord, just as you are in this room today and you are just speaking to our hearts, Lord, would you just speak to us as a spouse would just share concern? Speak concern to our heart. Let us hear your heart that you haven't been enough for us. Lord, be enough for us. Worldly things, worldly possessions, worldly pleasures, now forsaken. Bring freedom to this place by your spirit.